1850s, savage Indian wars were the prime issue preventing the rich young Oregon territory from becoming a state. Though many tribes had retreated to reservations, fierce resistance was still felt in the Rogue River Valley, where proud red men sworn to drive the white invaders from the land continued their defiance. But neither red men nor whites could foretell the ending of the decisive battle which was yet to come. Welcome to the Bloody Pit. It is I, Rod Barnett, and I'm welcoming, once again, the man, that bon vivant, that amazing podcaster, writer, and just a little bit of everything, the monster kid himself, Derek. Bon vivant? Bon, bon, uh, bon vivant. Uh, it's a... Uh, it's a term that I would have to look up to properly define, but trust me, it's it's it, it means that it means that you're nice. Oh, okay. I've, I've never been called that before, so I'm like, oh, okay. I'll, I'll take it. I'll put that on my business card. Well, I mean, you know, the, t- take take it as uh, the compliment intended, and also perhaps I should refer to you as Derek Cook, Esquire. Oh, oh, Esquire now. Esquire, you understand. Sure, sure. By the time this podcast is over, I'm going to be knighted and be sir, Derek, and y'all just keep going and going. That's fine by me. Whatever. <laughs> Soon it will be, Sir Derek. Hello, Sir Derek. <laughs> oh man, so how's it going, man? Thanks for having me on the show. Well, uh, this is overdue. I, of course, got completely distracted. You and I are uh, still in the midst. We're at the halfway point now, actually, of doing these uh, eight different William Castle westerns. And uh, the last time we did this was back in April of uh, oh, wow. the year. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we're way behind. I got distracted by outside projects and things that kept taking me away from uh, podcasting in different ways. And then, uh, oh man, then I got the opportunity to bring a couple of different people onto the show. And the people bugging me wanted me to do certain types of shows and things of that kind of things of that nature. To the point where, honestly, the bloody pit. There was a run of three episodes in a row where I felt like. I feel kind of filthy because it was, <laughs> we were doing, we did uh, Inseminoid with Adrian, Embodiment of Evil, which is the third and last Coffin Joe film, and then, um, oh darn, uh, oh yeah, the, uh, Nightmare Beach. And it did those right in a row, and I was like, "Man, this is turning into the, the, I, there needs to be there needs to be a good deal more variety." So quickly, we got back to Troy, and I got re- right back to uh, Abbott and Costello. And uh, the the '40s Universal horror stuff with Hold That Ghost, and I was like, oh, thanks. thanks. That's a little balance there because I felt like it was tipping over into the R-rated stuff really hard. <laughs> Starting to feel a little, little, uh, a little off kilter. A little variety is not bad, but I understand what you're saying, and I loved the Hold That Ghost episode. By the way, top, top. Oh, thank it was you. Really good. 
thank you very much. It was uh, it was a real joy to learn a little bit more about Joan Davis, who is just such a talent. Mm-hmm. And uh, one thing that uh, I didn't manage to I, f- I managed to completely forget uh, in that episode was that I discovered in my research that she was so sought after as a radio star in the early 40s. Now remember, this is in the early 40s. She was paid under contract for radio, for just radio work, a million dollars a year. That's crazy, man. And man, wow. Yeah. That's a lot of money back then. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money now. Yeah, it's a lot of money now, but then she was incredibly wealthy. That's how she set up her own production company, and that's how she was in it. That's how she had her TV show. Uh, in the early fifties, is she could she had her own production company because she was so so much of a radio star. That's crazy um, and fascinating. Uh, you know, the movie overall is just really cool. Uh, I dig it a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of like the the proto Abbott and Costello meet the monsters kind of movie. Yeah. And he's got two of my you know my favorites. I mean, you know, Evelyn Anchors and Richard Carlson are both amazing. So yeah, it's just it was a fun episode. I really enjoyed it and. Pass well, that on to uh, Troy for me, would you? <laughs> I will. Uh, Evelyn Anchors or Evelyn Anchors will turn up again as we discuss these two movies, so keep your hat on. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> well, just out of curiosity before we move on, uh, yeah. really quickly, what uh, – I mean, I, I I have not seen all of the Abbott and Costello films, and I'm, I'm woefully behind. I really okay. – I've got – I've got about seven or eight of them that I haven't watched, which is, you know, just a testament to the collecting and hoarding capabilities <laughs> that we have these days. But um, what what I'm, and I I fear I know the answer to this question, but what is your favorite Abbott and Costello film? You know, I, I think the the first Abbott and Costello meet the monsters movie is is going to be right up there with me. I mean, it's got everything that I love. You know, Abbott and Costello is great. And then it's got the monster. So Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. But. I think I also really I think I enjoy I, I know I enjoy uh, <laughs> Costello meet the Invisible Man is also one of my my favorites uh, really enjoy that one uh, partly because you get to see Abbott and Costello do things separately as well as together and oh, yeah. and Costello uh, I'm sorry not Costello Abbott actually has some great opportunities to act just you know seriously act against mm-hmm. other character other people and that is really cool too i also really like hold that go so that's right up there with you know, with with the other two for me i have not seen them all either i've mm-hmm. got quite a few of them here they not too long ago a few years ago they put out a a box set where it looks like a big trunk and it's got all the dvds in it and all that uh and i've been making my way through that off and on over the years they're all great. Well, I've actually I've actually set a goal for myself to try to watch uh, several of several more of their early films because, mm-hmm. like you, being a monster kid, I'm kind of a I've kind of gravitated toward their you know the monster films that they did in the late 40s and early 50s. So that's the era of their career that I'm most familiar with. But having seen Hold That Ghost and being reminded of it, I've, I've you know I've seen Buck Privates and. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, it's just one of those things where it's like, well, I've never seen in the Navy. I've never seen, you know, darn uh, some of the um, some of the others from that early period of time. And I have them. That's what's terrible is I have keep them flying and ride them cowboy and pardon my sarong and who done it. And I just mm-hmm. have never stuck them in the the player and watched them. And it's one of those things where you're going, eh, this is this is ridiculous. So I've set myself the goal to watch at least four to five more Abbott and Costello films in 2020. And that is, uh, I don't think it's going to be hard to do considering, uh, my girlfriend, Beth is all for it because she likes Abbott and Costello too. So it's, <laughs> it's not, it's not a real torturous thing to get her. Okay. I'll watch another one. So 
<laughs> the time of their lives is also a really good one. Really? Uh, if you haven't, yeah, I really enjoy that one too. It's it's a period piece, you know, it's like in the 1700s. Hmm. Uh, but there's also some supernatural elements to it too. There's ghosts and things, but no, I really enjoy that one as well. So I'm real curious to hear what you think about them when you start going through some more. I, I'd like to hear more about what you think of the Abbott and Costello films. Well, I have the feeling that I'll probably end up writing little, you know, little brief bits for the blog, oh, little brief bits on the blog just to kind of mark my progress through them because kind of I kind of want to try to watch them uh, in the order they were released to just try to kind of experience the way in which you know someone in the 40s as they were as they were coming out in theaters would have would have you know would have run across them at least you know hopefully run across them <laughs> if they if they could get to the theater anyway sure that, that's how I keep telling myself I'm going to finally get through the Paul Nashie films is the order in which they release but it's just one of those things where I haven't even started that project yet so I understand <laughs> well that's a that's a tall order because getting through all of the Paul Nashy stuff can be well. It's taken. It's it, we we still have a few that we haven't watched, but it's just because there's no English language option. But if you're just t- just talking about the horror movies, you can manage it. It's uh, and it's becoming easier and easier with all the Blu-rays that are coming out. Right. Uh, I haven't even popped the plastic off my assignment terror disc yet, and everything I've read so far is that it's just an astonishingly beautiful print. So I can't wait. I am looking at it right now, <laughs> sitting here next to my computer. Same situation. I haven't taken it out of the shrink wrap. So hey, it's it's got it's got one of my favorite mummies in it, which is which is saying something considering it's you know it's got you know only a little bit of mummy in it. So, well, <laughs> speaking of mummy, I haven't taken the plastic wrap off my uh, Nashi mummy film either. So I <laughs> oh really? Yeah, it's it's sitting over there by the DVD Blu-ray player. So. Well, that one I have watched, and it does look fantastic, well, and I think I, you will enjoy well, it considering. I have seen that one before, uh, and that one I, I do enjoy quite a bit. Uh, so I'm real curious to see how the Blu-ray holds up. Well, that's just it. Uh, the Blu-ray was a little bit of a revelation. I still think that this is the best I've ever seen it look, which was probably not that hard because I don't I don't think that past video releases have really been representative of how, how beautifully shot that movie is, and I think the Blu-ray is really going to be an eye-opener, so... Fantastic. Well, all right, folks. Um, what we're going to do today is talk about a couple more of the westerns that William Castle made for Columbia Pictures. Mm-hmm. These were all put out on a set. Uh, was it last year? I think it was last year. No, maybe it was twenty. I think it was twenty eighteen when these things came out. I'm not positive, but nevertheless, it's a set of eight westerns that he made. One was in uh, the late forties. All the rest were. Uh, made in the 1950s and by sheer chance we just decided to do the next two on the second disc and by sheer chance uh there they have a, an actor in common and it's an actor that as monster kids we are very familiar with but i tell you what first let's take a, a short break here and then we will come back and dive into the first of these which is called the battle of rogue river so hang on one second and we'll be right back right on spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. 
subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher. Or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and The Head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. I'm Jeff Sandwich. You might not know me, barely anyone does, except my mother and her cocker spaniel, Alan. But I have listened to every single movie podcast that has ever been made. I don't get out much, and sometimes I have to make toilet in a bottle. What did he just say, Marjorie? However, having completed this exhaustive research, it is my assertion that the After Movie Diner podcast, with its heady mix of comedy, movie banter, fandom, passion, beards, music, and voluminous thighs, is in fact the greatest movie podcast available anywhere, even Holland. Find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. Now, where's that bottle? Major Archer? Yes, what is it, mister? I'm, uh, I'm afraid this is mostly my fault, sir. Oh. And who are you? Name's Wyatt, Major. Stacy Wyatt. Yes, I've heard of you, Wyatt. And your regulars. Been doing a good job. Thank you. Uh, you see, sir, uh, Major Wallach gave us permission to use this barrack today for recruiting. And... Oh, well, and good, Wyatt. I'd have done the same. Thank you, sir. However, I might have reminded you that this barrack is part of a military installation. And if you use it as a recruiting station, you might do well to conduct your recruiting in a military manner. Yes, sir. Sorry if I... We'll say no more about it. Glad to know you, Wyatt. I've been advised to lean heavily on your knowledge and experience in this territory. With your permission, I intend to do so. Anytime. Happy to help. Okay, the Battle of Rogue River, 1954 Technicolor Western film, stars George Montgomery, Martha Heyer, and Richard Denning. My man. Now... Here's the odd thing. Richard Denning is in both of the movies we're going to be talking about today, and I did not know that before we made the decision to go ahead and do these two movies together. I thought it was kind of cool, though. It was a nice, uh, it was a nice treat. I, lo- I love Richard Denning. I mean, he's the man, you know, uh, creature from the Black Lagoon, the Black Scorpion. He's great. Uh, so yeah. to see him in both of these films playing completely different characters, too, I thought was really nice. Yeah, but both of them are still kind of cads. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> especially in uh, the other one, the one in the West, there are a lot of uh, elements that he would later portray in Creature from the Black Lagoon, for sure. Well, that, what's weird is Battle of, Rogue River, Battle of Rogue River, the movie we're talking about today, came out the same year as Creature from the Black Lagoon. He, made, he, he had three movies come out in 1954. <laughs> You know, when you're part of the studio system and, well, I, I, I can't even say this was a studio thing because Creature was universal, but these two were Columbia. So I don't know. No, no, no. Yeah, he was, he was just an actor for hire, yeah. I think. And so he, I mean, don't get me wrong. We all know Richard Denning because we're monster kids and we know him because he's Mark Williams in Creature from the Black Lagoon. But he was also in Creature with the Atom Brain in 55 mm-hmm. and uh, The Day the World Ended and he was just in a whole lot. I mean, if you if uh, he was in the Black Scorpion, 
which is, you know, of course, a great stop-motion monster movie from the 60s. Or no, I'm sorry, that's from 57. Yeah, it's late 50s with Willis O'Brien stop-motion, for crying out loud. So, But he, yeah. had, he had a really long career, and he had a career in, a big career in television as well. As well. He played, he was in several television series as the star, mm-hmm. including playing uh, Michael Shane in a, in a TV series uh, in 1960. And then... Uh, he was coaxed by the producer back into uh, acting, and he played the the governor in uh, seventy three episodes of Hawaii Five O, which was pretty cool. Yeah, I know that's and he had that he 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 did that for them from nineteen sixty eight to nineteen eighty. So it's just yeah. like, you know, he didn't really want to do it, but uh, apparently the producer talked him into it by saying, "Look, when you when you do an episode." They'll be you'll be working five hour days and only a couple of days a week. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> oh well, okay, okay. But of course, the the real surprise for me is not just that Richard Denning's in this and he's cool and he's always good whenever you see him. But it was the first chance that I had to do any research on his life and career, and I discovered that he is the reason Evelyn Anchors stopped being in movies past a certain point because he married her. Damn him. Yeah, it's, you know, at that point, though, at that point in history, once you marry them off, a lot of times that's what they want to do or that's what they end up doing, you know, being a wife or a mother. And and you know what? If that was Evelyn's choice, awesome. But, yeah. <laughs> well, they were obviously very happy together because they were, oh, sure. they were together for forever. As a matter of fact, there's one story told that uh, they, they always kind of, that was always kind of a, a good example of how much in love they were is that for the first 25 years they were married and they were married longer than 25 years, by the way, uh, they exchanged uh, anniversary cards every month of those years. Oh, that's sweet. I know, I know. I mean, you talk about a couple that clearly loved each other and were happy to be together. <laughs> they, they were. Richard Denning, he's, I have to say, as Monster Kids, we come to him because we know of, know of him as the kind of jerky character he plays in Creature from the Black Lagoon. And right. I have to say, when I settled in to watch this and saw, okay, okay, cool, Richard Denning, this is going to be kind of neat to see him play play something different. And at first in this film, you kind of think he is playing like a, just a, just a, a kind of sideline good guy. And then there's this heel turn at a certain point. And you, realize, <laughs> you realize, oh, he's a scumbag. Oh, yeah. Well, I The first time we see that start to happen, and I don't know how spoilery, spoilery you want to get here. but when I, think, first... I think we can go full spoiler because uh, I, these, these movies are short and... Knowing that this heel turn happens won't, you know, knowing the events of it, I don't think will will turn people away who are curious about them. When he turned up and told the small group of soldiers, they attacked us, they took your daughter. I thought maybe something happened on my DVD, that something had skipped ahead. Maybe yeah. I had a faulty print or, so, or pressing or something because that didn't happen. But OK, fine, whatever. Nope, that's just him. Being the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, be, or being one of them. I, that's yeah. something else I like about this. He is kind of the face of the bad people, but the bad people are behind him are the like the people in control of the mining interests in the area who are working behind the scenes to keep the, uh, the, the army and the Native Americans fighting each other so that Oregon won't gain statehood. Which is exactly how it happened, I can say, as somebody who lives in Oregon. Exactly how it no, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to, okay, so being the being the freak boy that I am, I of course did look up the whole uh yeah? Rogue River thing and, and, and learned that of course this is a movie. 
And <laughs> so any type of reality you're looking for, I mean, there, there, basically, let's put it this way. Uh, there was a Battle of Rogue River. Mm-hmm. There was a what they refer to as the Rogue River Wars uh, between 1855 and 1856 between the U.S. Army uh, with local and the Native American tribes. But uh, as for what happens in this movie, no, not really. No, <laughs> uh, I kept looking. I was reading the whole thing about all the you know the the mining the mining interests and all the the clashes that started in the uh, the the forties and how by the early fifties the mining interests were really kind of a major a major player in Oregon the territory trying to keep things the way they were and. And uh, all this kind of stuff. And, oh, Table Rock really exists. But at the same time, I kept looking for uh, some decisive information about a cannon being used in, in, in a battle with Native Americans. And this being some kind of turning point. It's like, nope, none of that's not. That's all invented by the screenwriter. Are you trying to tell me <laughs> that there was never a Native American named Chief Mike? <laughs> okay. Not that I can, not that I can find. And I, I've got to tell you, I can't, I, I was, I was waiting to like have to kick on subtitles or something to make sure that they weren't just pronouncing it Mike and it was spelled in some odd way, but no, it's chief Mike. I don't get it. I don't understand. It's, it's, I guess I'm willing to accept it just because, oh, okay, whatever. I, I don't know. It, it's spelled that way. It's spelled M-I-K-E, just like just like the name Mike. It's really weird. It is bizarre. Um, I, I, I don't know where that came from. That's one of those things that I would love to learn more about. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Chief Mike, <laughs> played by Michael Granger. So maybe, you know, they're like, oh, hey, Mike. I, I don't know. <laughs> Who the heck knows? Who knows? It, it seems to be a complete invention of the screenplay writer. But I got to say, the screenplay writer is somebody we should talk about a little bit because William Castle, who directed this film, uh, directed several different scripts by this fellow. He did uh, this one and also Drums of Tahiti, which he did the same year, and The Iron Glove, which is a, a movie that I actually want to see one day. The Iron Glove looks really, really interesting. Uh, not, all came, also came out in 1954. Uh, Irishman Charles Wogan wields his sword in the cause of James Stewart, who seeks to replace George I on the throne of England. It's like, well, yeah, I'm there for that. Sign me up. Yeah. I'm in, man. I'm in. If you ever want to talk about it on the show, I'm I'm there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, stars Robert Stack. Uh, Also in the cast is Alan Hale Jr., so the skipper's along for the ride somewhere over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like The Iron Glove, also written by Douglas Hayes and directed by William Castle. And it's like, I, as far as I can tell, there's no, uh, there's been no DVD release, but I really want to see that thing now. Yeah. But uh, he also, he's also the fellow who wrote uh, a film we've already talked about in these podcasts. He or he wrote the script for uh, Masterson of Kansas. Right. But the way he apparently made a fair amount of money was writing for a lot of television in the fifties. Uh, he did he did Cheyenne and the, a lot of Adventures of Ren Ten Ten, Tales of the Seventy Seventh Bengal Lancers, Cimarron City Seventy Seventh Sunset Strip, uh, eleven episodes of Maverick. The guy wrote. So, oh, and also, oh, but the best news. He wrote some Night Gallery. He wrote some Night Gallery, and I just if I, I want to hear your best news. Yeah, but he wrote three episodes of Night Gallery, including. One of my absolute favorite episodes. Oh, well. But only because the name of the episode is Brenda. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
that oh, and then name, when, che- name checking the wife, I get it. Hey, well, you know, that and then when they show it here locally, uh, I think MeTV used to show Night Gallery. I don't know if they still do. But if you pull it up on the television and look at whatever Comcast says for their description, the synopsis of the episode, Brenda, the story of a woman who falls in love with a hairy thing, which is basically <laughs> our, our marriage, <laughs> our, our life story. <laughs> Oh, I haven't seen that Night Gallery episode, and now I must seek it out. Oh, Lord, but the thing is, though, Douglas Hayes, the guy who wrote the movie we're talking about, Battle of Rogue River, also wrote Kitten with a Whip in 1964. Oh, wow. And the screenplay for Ice Station Zebra in 68. Oh, wow. But before that, my favorite news for him as a screenwriter is some of his TV work. In 1960, he wrote three of my favorite episodes of Thriller with Boris Karloff. Nice. He wrote The the Premature Burial. He wrote The Hungry Glass and The Purple Room. And those are three fantastic episodes of that show. Wow. Yeah, Thriller is amazing. Those are awesome episodes. Well, yeah, he wrote a few, he wrote a few night gallery episodes. That's cool yeah. to know. But. I mean, it's no Brenda, but you know. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> yes. Do you get a cookie for that? Is that what happens? Do you get a cookie for that mention? Uh, I'll, I'll let you know later on. <laughs> <laughs> oh Lord! Well, at any rate, so what we have here is yet another seventy-minute-long western. Uh, these were programmers turned out by Columbia to feed uh, the matinee audiences. Uh, I'm sure they were also built as uh, double features at different times. And this one is, uh, you know, another Katzman production. So you will notice, or at least I know I certainly noticed, that uh, sometimes the budgetary constraints on this one shine through a little bit more than you might expect. Mm. Uh, There are times when it seems pretty clear that they're using uh, shots of different things uh, especially different uh, shots of large groups of Native Americans uh, that seem to have been shot for a different movie. And they're working really hard to match their footage with the actors who are actually in their movie to those scenes. But they, you, see it, you see them often enough that you begin to catch a few little inconsistencies here and there. And um, there are shots like that, and there are also shots of... Um, like people traveling through, uh, you know, uh, wilderness or tree-lined areas or near rivers and streams where none of our main actors are seen. And it's just a lot of, you know, other character actors doing their thing, you know, just extras and things of that nature. And it seems like that footage was probably pulled from a larger budgeted film as well. But it's well integrated. It's not as if we're looking at it and there's some kind of jarring difference between the footage. But every now and then... It seems a little a little obvious, but that's just smart filmmaking. If you can make your film look a little bigger than it actually was by employing some stock shots that you can blend well enough, it's a good idea. And it's oh, sure. pretty well handled here. Sure. Um, and, and I think it's even more obvious in the other film, The Gun That Won the West. You oh, see, yeah. I, I, I agree, too. And both, yeah. both of these movies were probably shot under the same kind of budgetary restrictions that you would expect from these kind of programmers from this time. Of course, in a lot of ways, that is kind of part of the charm to me is that these movies were not big budget. They had to, they had to uh, get their thrills as cheaply as possible. And that probably sounded wrong, taken out of context. Uh, <laughs> but um, when you're trying to make a movie of this type, you want, Battle of Rogue River needs to feel a little big 
and they didn't really have the budget. This is not definitely not an A cast budget. This is not you know this is definitely a B western, but they make it they make it seem pretty large, and they do a pretty good job by focusing in on the just you know three or four characters. There's only there's only three or four characters, maybe five, that you're going to be asked to pay attention to and do much with. And there are maybe two other peripheral characters who kind of come in and out of the movie that you kind of kind of push the story forward. And they do a pretty good job with it. I have to say, I was not I was not aware of much of the work of George Montgomery, the guy who's the actual star of the movie. Um, and I was, but I was surprised uh, by. His voice. He's got an incre- he's got an oh. incredible voice. Holy crap! What a voice this man has. Oh yeah, no, he he was the takeaway for me on this. I I love Richard Denning and I love what he did in this film, but the takeaway for me for me for this film is that I need to know more about George Montgomery. He sounded amazing, and I loved his performance too. That 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 strict. I'm a soldier. I'm gonna whoop everybody into shape. And yeah, he was. He was the best for me. I, I loved his performance here, and I want to watch more of his stuff. Well, uh, just really quickly, another little thing about George Montgomery's actual real life. He was married to Dinah Shore <laughs> for a long time. Wow. For like 20 years. <laughs> uh, they, they had a kid together, and I think they may have had to get... They were divorced in 63, but they were together for from 1943 to 1963. And uh, it just seems to me that uh, the guys in this movie really married well, so... <laughs> <laughs> but uh I, like I said I was not I was not familiar with uh, George Montgomery. It turns out that I have seen a few movies that he's in, but never one where he was the star. I am very curious to eventually see uh, one um, Italian made western he made late in his career in 1965, a movie called Django the Honorable Killer. It was made in Spain, and it seems, but it seems to have. Although it's it's what you would expect to a degree, the director seems to have actually been an American. Uh, so I'm, I, and that and that's something that did happen occasionally with those spaghetti westerns. But I've never seen Django: The Honorable Killer, hmm. uh, which you know, he is he is the star of. But uh, that would be the it's, it's, with my strange viewing habits, that would have been the closest I would come to seeing one of his one of his films as a star before this. You know, I love my spaghetti. I love spaghetti westerns, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a lot out there that I have not seen. Uh, obviously, there's so many, so many, and they're always digging up new ones to release on Blu-ray over here in the states. Uh, East West Productions is, I mean, <laughs> pay attention to what they've got coming out, and you're gonna, you want to hide your wallet because uh, <laughs> they just keep putting out <laughs> this great stuff. Oh, I, oh, I know. They just announced another one the other day that um, I've just, I'm super excited about, and it's like, you know. 15 minutes before, if you'd asked me what the name of this film was, I would I would have had no idea. But then I see there, East West is releasing it. And I'm just like, I got to have that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And as far as Django films go, I mean, there's really only technically, what, two official Django films and the rest just got called Django because they were profitable. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. That was everybody was just going, well, we can steal that name. Then nobody's copyrighted yeah. that name. Let's run with it. If not Django, it's Ringo or Sartana or Santana. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's all they had. I, I used to joke with people years ago that I should start a podcast where we do nothing but talk about Django films. Oh, you could do it oh, <laughs> for dude, years. You, oh, oh, oh man, you could go. You could go 150 episodes at I'm least. Not, at yeah, least, yeah. 
And, and it would be, and even if you were just, you know, including films that had, you know, that were released in one country with Django in the title, you'd still, you know, you'd still have a hundred at least. Mm-hmm. But the oh. thing is, George Montgomery, remember, he, we, we've seen him before in Masterson, Masterson, Masterson of Kansas, if I can speak. Mm-hmm. He was playing oh. Bat Masterson. But uh, he's, he, I, he's more impressive in this, I think, because I think so he... Too. He's he, there's something very standout about his performance in this movie, and I think a lot of that is just down to the character that he's playing. But oh, but man, I, you look at George Montgomery's resume, and this dude was in more westerns than there are grains of sand in the ocean. It's insane. He oh was yeah. In, I mean, movie after movie, the Cisco Kid and the Lady, uh, <laughs> the Cowboy and the Blonde, Riders of the Purple Sage. Ten Gentlemen from West Point, which is might as well be a Western. I mean, yeah, he was occasionally in something else as well. You know, Stardust or Charter Pilot or Three Little Girls in Blue. But, holy crap. Yeah, uh, the Texas Rangers, Indian Uprising, Cripple Creek, The Pathfinder. Toughest gun in Tombstone. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Gun Belt, where he plays someone named Billy Ringo. It's... This guy was making westerns after western after western. It it's pretty amazing to realize, you know, that he was right guy, right place, right time. Yeah, good. You know, good work if you can get it, and certainly he did. And it looks like he kind of transitioned a little bit into doing some war films as well at some point. So yeah. a handful of those as well: Battle of the Bulge, uh, War Kill, you know, things like that. Uh, I'm looking at his resume and his filmography, and some of these titles alone make me want to watch them. Satan's Harvest? What is that? I don't know, but I, I need no to idea, see that know. film. Well, he also he also directed Satan's Harvest. Right. So even more so, I need to see this film. Uh, yeah, that's something else. He turned his hand to directing, and he only has six credits as a director. Uh, but uh, The Steel Claw was the first movie he directed in 1961, and that's a movie I'm curious to see, and I'm really kind of surprised that I haven't run across it before after I read about it a little bit. Uh, it's uh, 1961. A Marine station in the Philippines loses a hand in an accident and is discharged from the Corps. When the Japanese invade the Philippines, he's called back into service. And um, I, I, you know, I read the description of that, and I'm like, man, I wish somebody somebody show that so I can watch it. When I saw the title that he directed, uh, Gorillas in Pink Lace, I thought, what the heck is this? And then you read the description, you're like, oh, okay, it's just another war adventure film. So, okay, okay. <laughs> wasn't wasn't quite as bizarre as I thought it was going to turn out to be. So, But George Montgomery, an amazing voice. He is, uh, I, got, I got to say, I kind of like the fact that you spend the first 30 minutes of the movie with his character as someone that you're not really sure you're going to particularly like. He's... One one might say he's he's dangerously close to playing a character who's got to stick up his ass, but <laughs> it works really effectively in this. Well, let, let's give some people here. Well, let's give some people some idea of what the the plot is, real quick. Okay. Okay. Uh, in the Oregon Territory, prior to the American Civil War, so this takes place in uh, eighteen fifty six. Uh, Chief Mike. And we've already talked about this. Chief Mike has fought the U.S. Army and the white settlers to a standstill. As a result, the post commander, Major Wallach, is replaced by Major Archer, who's played by George Montgomery. He's Major Archer. On the way to the fort, Major Archer's troop of cavalry, accompanied by two field guns, spot an ambush by Chief Mike's Indians. Major Archer orders one of the guns to fire, knocking down a tree and panicking the Indians who suffer no casualties. Now, when they say field guns, we need to make sure you understand that these are cannons. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I, and I love what he says, if I can interject here, I love what he says to his men that sometimes he can get better results with a big bark than a little bite. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about these big guns. It's amazing. And, and, and he's, he's just, right. Mm. He's yeah. right because he and, and, and that scene proves it. And that's another bit of economy of writing that I like about these kind of movies, because remember, the running times on these things are only going to be 70 minutes. They're not they're a little over an hour. You have got to make your points quickly. You can't do slow buildups and then payoffs late at the end. You've got to have pr- pretty strong setup set up, set up, set up, and then the payoff is the final 10 minutes or so. And you cannot play around. You can't, uh, I hate to say it, but one thing that you you will lose in a movie with this kind of running time, uh, especially of this type, is you know, you're not going to have the place for a lot of character development. The character development that happens, the growth possibly that happens on screen with characters is going to be pretty much, you know, from uh, one letter of the alphabet to the next letter of the alphabet and not, you know, from A to Z. So, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, pretty much. We, <clears throat> and even more so in the other film that we're going to talk about. So, yeah. 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 And 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 that's okay. That's what these things are. These things aren't built. These are not, you know, these aren't epics. These things are not 90 minutes, you know, an hour 45 where you can have a lot of uh, nuance and uh, build things slowly. This is, this is a film that's got to make its point and then move on to its next point so that all of these things come together in the final act. Well, on arrival at the fort, Major Wallach was, uh, has allowed, we see that Major Wallach has allowed the use of, the, of his barracks to recruit more irregulars for Stacy Wyatt who accompanies the regulars on their military expeditions. Now, Stacy Wyatt is the character played by Richard Denning. And uh, this is this turns out to be, uh, strangely enough, actually kind of historically accurate. There were a lot of militias and irregular units that were formed in the Oregon Territory that were not regular military, but did, did work hand-in-glove with the U.S. Army uh, all over the, the territory. Uh, it was understood that these, these were people who, you know, might might be there for two or three months and then have to go back, you know, go back home or to their farm or to whatever their, uh, their major concern was as civilians instead of, uh, instead of soldiers, they couldn't really go and become soldiers because they had other, other, uh, responsibilities. And so people like Stacy Wyatt, uh, Denning's character are, uh, historically accurate, which uh, is not something that I'm going to be able to say that about, uh, for the rest of this movie. So, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as the recruiting involves, uh, as the recruiting of new uh, irregulars involves free alcohol and kisses by women to the volunteers, uh, Major Archer is furious and immediately takes command of the post to reinstall military discipline, retrain the men, and plan another expedition. And cancel the dance. And cancel the dance, which tends to upset <laughs> all the women there in the fort. Now, no one is more outraged than Sergeant Major McLean's daughter. Brett, who thinks Archer inhumane, or inhuman, I should say. Uh, Brett is uh, a, a, a lovely lass, played by actress Martha Heyer. You and I, uh, once again, uh, because of our particular loves of particular types of films, we know her from a few movies. She was in, uh, well, she was in Bikini Beach, but I haven't seen that. But she was also in... <laughs> you should. It's a good one. I will. If, I, if you hand it to me, I'll go watch it right now. Uh, <laughs> I, I love those Bikini Beach. I love those movies. So, so. But she was in uh, the Ray Harryhausen film First Men in the Moon. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. that's where I know her from. But also, I have seen her in Blood on the Arrow, 
And all those were around the same time. And strangely enough, she was in uh, House of a Thousand Dolls with Vincent Price in the late 60s. That's right. That's right. Well, we were talking about Abbott and Costello earlier. She was in an Abbott and Costello film, Abbott and Costello Go to Mars. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot yeah, about that. So. That's that's one of the Abbott and, that's the one Abbott and Costello movie I've seen where I I get uncomfortable watching it. Um, really? Yeah, yeah, and it's because um, Costello's character in that movie seems seems to be cognitively impaired, if you know what I mean. Okay. <laughs> Instead okay. of just a doofus, and so. I kind of feel like we're we're being told in this movie to laugh at someone who needs help. Okay. Okay. And so it makes it uncomfortable. It makes it uncomfortable for me, and I, I I've said that to people before, and they, I get this really weird look. But it, that's always the way. It's the only one of their movies I've seen that I feel that way about. But it's it makes me uncomfortable because when you when Bud Abbott is mistreating Costello generally in any of these movies. It's well-deserved because the guy is either intentionally being an idiot or needs to be rectified because he's doing something stupid. But in Abbott and Costello Go to Mars, it's just like, I, I, I don't, don't hit that man. He needs medication or something. There's <laughs> something wrong with this guy. But that's neither here nor there. That's off the side. Sorry, people. Didn't mean to bring down the mood. Sorry, sorry, sorry. There was another movie that she was in that I keep meaning to track down because I love the title. And it's a horror movie from the 60s, so I can talk about it on my podcast. Sure. Pyro, the thing without a face. Ooh. That title is perfect. I don't know anything about the film, but I have to see it. That's that's one worth seeing. I I, I have to say yeah. this. I went through a period a few years ago where uh, I was watching a number of uh, Jerry Lewis's comedies from uh, the fifties and sixties because I just had not ever seen many of them beyond the Nutty Professor, and I think the Nutty Professor is an absolutely brilliant film. So I started looking around at a lot of other Jerry Lewis movies, but I'm and, and uh, I, I came away with very mixed feelings about those films. But one that I didn't see is one that Martha Heyer is the co-star of, and I wish I had uh, the Delicate Delinquent from 1957. Huh. Okay. And, yeah, and Darren McGavin's in the movie too, and it's like, damn it, I wish I I wish I caught up with that one. Crap. Yeah. But oh wow, she worked with Bert I. Gordon too. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And P- Picture Mommy Dead, mm-hmm. which is a film I still have not seen. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> wow. Man, it's, it, making a list and starting to check things off. That's what I do I with know. all these things like this. You don't want to see my list of movies of, to watch. Yeah, it's it's intimidating. <laughs> well, at any rate, what we have here is you, you know your basic setup of, to be blunt, cowboys versus Indians, or more really, let's be clear, the army versus Indians. And the, the, this movie yeah. has set itself very effectively in a in the time period and the place of a real conflict. The things that the film wraps up with, the events that are the, the thing that happened in the last minute, where we learn, you know, when Oregon actually became a state. Uh, those things are those things are real, but you know, this is a very very fictional way of getting to that end. But at the same time, it's a pretty entertaining tale, and I always love it when you know the slightest bit of historical accuracy or putting it in the correct time and place and using the same, you know, the, the correct place names can kind of give it some verisimilitude and it makes it feel like it's if uh, it, it gets it over the hump. The, the, the For me, it makes it feel a little easier to indulge in the desire to uh, be told a good story. And this story is pretty good. I mean, it's not great. Um, these are B-Westerns. They're not aiming for great. But as things start to come around, um, well, we get, well, what it is is we get an emissary from uh, Chief Mike 
and he tries to arrange a meeting between the new commander to discuss peace. Uh, but Major Archer initially refuses, and as a matter of fact, has decided that you know this has gone on too long, and his entire desire from the jump is to, no, 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 we just need to um, defeat these people, run them out of here, and be done with it. But just before he's about to do that, orders come for him, brand new orders, that inform him that he has uh, got to turn diplomat and try to negotiate with the Indians. I love that scene as well, because we spend some time with Montgomery and all of his men and Stacy, and he's laying out the plans. This is what we're going to do. You're going to do this. I'm going to do that. This is what we're going to do. We're going to take it over. We're going to win. Okay, you got your orders, gentlemen. Get to it. And then just as they're leaving, the new orders come in. He's like, okay, uh, forget all of that. Um, I guess we're diplomats now. Yeah, and he is none too he's none team. too happy about it, but he's a good soldier and he does his best to do this. He does his best to take these orders and run with them. Um he sets up a, he sets up a meeting with the chief. They uh smoke the peace pipe, the uh general film cliche that tells you that we're not going to kill each other right now. And uh they they meet talk about uh, respecting each other and they arrange a 30-day truce where uh, the Indians will stay on one side of Rogue River and the uh, whites will not cross from that, the other side of Rogue River. And uh, essentially, Chief Mike says that if this happens for 30 days, if everything goes smoothly in, these 30, in this 30-day period, we'll talk about something more permanent. Well, this is when we get the heel turn. <laughs> this is when we get uh, Richard Denning's character... Stacy Wyatt, who up to now has been, you know, on the side of all that is good and fine. Uh, we, as you described earlier, man, he rides up to a patrol during this 30 day period. Everything's been going along pretty well for about three weeks. And uh, one of the patrols, the uh, army patrols on this side of the river, he rides up to them and informs them that uh, the Indians came across the river, snatched up um, uh, Martha Heyer's character, uh, Brett, and have spirited her off. Major Archer is right behind him with the regular army, and we need to do something. At the time, as you as you spoke about earlier, we don't have any. You're, you you might have been right that maybe uh, somehow the DVD had skipped ahead and you missed a scene or something, or a missing reel. Well, or see, something. that was just it. yeah, it just seemed to kind of come out of the yeah. Blue. You know what popped into my head was well, this is a seventy minute film, and maybe they needed to trim a scene or two out of it, and they just needed to go ahead and get to the action. So maybe, okay, we, this, you know, a hard 70 or 71 minutes, we lose these scenes right here and just go ahead and jump to, well, the fighting starts. Or it's too expensive to stage that scene. So let's just talk about it off screen or something. Yes, something happened. Maybe. No, no, that's not at all what happened. No, it seems that Wyatt, the scumbag, has been secretly employed by the uh, mining interests and the cattle interests and all the people who want to keep Oregon as a territory instead of a state. To keep, they, they, they want to keep the Indian Wars going. They oppose statehood because it would ruin their profits. And uh, this, to me, this whole section, when we learn this part of this, this little uh, business conspiracy behind the scenes to keep everything stirred up, it felt so modern to me right then. It felt like the kind of thing. Oh, sure. It's, this is like, you know, expose in the Washington Post or something where, where this kind of scumbaggery is, is revealed. And it's like, yeah, yeah, this stuff, this is universal. This is across time. And it's really neat to see this being a, a, a major point in the story. It's, it's, I have to say, it, 
I, I, I want to be cynical and say that it's, it's not the kind of thing that I expect in these kind of B-Westerns because they have to be so short. But they handle it with such economy of storytelling that it works really effectively and adds some, some really surprising moments in the story because usually it's very, you know, one, two, three, four, five story over in this. It's more complicated than that because you've got a character who presents for most of the movie up to this point as a good guy. And then once the audience knows continues to be fooling the other characters in the movie while we know he's a bad guy. And it's handled incredibly well. The the writing here is so, smooth because during the uh, the peace talks Mm -hmm. a dead native american is found and they blame it on the whites and major archers like i i don't know anything about this i don't know what's going on so you're already starting to think what's happened here is that the native american is doing something because they don't want the whites to get involved and then when we realize it's actually stacy you can kind of retroactively go back oh man he's killing his own guys he's killing you know whatever and he's just total total scum total bad guy but you're torn because yep. it's Richard Denning, and he's presented as such a nice, fun guy to be around. He's flirting with Brett. You know, he's making friends with Major Archer, even though Major Archer is a strict, straight-laced kind of guy. You know, he's just being this great guy you want to hang out with. And when you realize he's not really the good guy after all, man, as a, as a watcher, as a viewer of this film, I'm torn. And this is just a 70-minute little, 70 minute little Western with not a lot of money behind it, and it pulled all of that out of me. And I think that's something. It's, it's pretty impressive. It's nice to see that Richard Denning, the, char- the, the actor that I walked into this movie knowing from you know a bunch of science fiction films that he made later on, it, it, it's nice to see him being the guy who gets the most complicated role in the picture. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And he, he, he does a darn good job. It's I have to say, uh, as many movies as I've seen him in, I've never really, you know, he, it's never ticked over in my head while watching him and all the movies that I've seen him in that he was somebody who was really good at his job. And seeing him in this, a film that I think is not nearly as good as some of those science fiction movies that he made, this is the, this is the movie that made me go, you know, that guy was really good at his job. <laughs> he really was capable of doing really good stuff on screen. Oh, and yeah. the fact that it, I should have seen it before, but it just, it, it's the kind of acting that, uh, that doesn't draw attention to itself. It's very naturalistic. He's good at it. He's this, always this been is, charismatic, right? In all yeah, the films that yeah, we've yeah. ever seen him in, he's always been charismatic. You always want to exactly. spend time with him, even though you know he's going to get the, act, the expedition killed up in the Black Lagoon. You know that. But you still <laughs> want to hang out with him because he's a charismatic guy. He did something here, and I don't know if it was something that he brought to the table, that Castle had him do and pulled out of him as a director, or what. But there's just something about this film and this performance that makes this one of my favorite Denning performances, that he, he really does pull a lot out of the viewer uh, these conflicting feelings you, you want to like him but you don't but wow what's he doing it's just fascinating well i have to say that um early in his career richard denning was cast in, in uh, rather heroic roles that was i mean when you look at him you understand why i mean there's even one movie in his career um I'm trying to remember the name of it where he played a kind of a kind of tarzan like character not tarzan <laughs> but but sort of a kind of a tarzan character Oh, yeah. um, That's the picture that turns up when you look him up on the Internet Movie Database. That's his his profile pic is him wearing a loincloth. I mean, (laughs) mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the thing is, one of the reasons for that is probably because he always cited that as the favorite of his movies that he'd ever made. 
And uh, I thought that I thought that was kind of cool. He must have really enjoyed doing that. But he played the heroic type because when you look at his face, I mean, he's got the face to play a hero. But there came a certain point in his career, um, and it was probably in the early '50s when it seems like somebody at Universal <laughs> must have thought, you know, he can do obnoxious, jerky guy even better than the heroic thing. <laughs> and I mean, because that's what you. I mean, remember that's what we end up with in Creature from the Black Lagoon. Sure. And in this movie, he's kind, he kind of gets to be both in the same picture. And it's just this little Western B programmer. And that's kind of, that's kind of got to be nice. And it means that I think that there's probably other places in his career when, you know, after this point in the early 50s when he was making these movies and being able to show off not just that he, you know, can be, a, you know, a, an heroic character, but maybe that's he got to be cast in different types of roles. And, uh, I mean, like for instance, the, in 1957, he's in the black scorpion. Well, he's in the hero role there. He's once again, playing the heroic kind of guy. But what's weird is every time I watch the black scorpion, because this was made, you know, cause it was made like three years after creature from the black lagoon. I'm waiting for him to do the heel turn again. Yeah. <laughs> yep. He's good at both. I keep wondering if I dig into more of his movies, am I going to get to see, especially in the 50s and 60s stuff, am I going to get to see him being able to play, uh, being allowed, I should say, to play more nuanced characters than just the heroic guy? Because clearly he's good at playing the heroic guy and he's good at playing the obnoxious jerky guy too. No, he was good at it. He was real good at it. As you might expect, uh, all hell breaks loose, battles start. And uh, by breaking the treaty, the Indians and the white people start fighting each other. I don't guess we need to give away the specific details of the very end, but th- those what needs to be got, get got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, it's yeah. A, and, it, and it's a satisfying ending. Uh, I have to say that uh, the, the fist fight, the physical fight between George Montgomery and uh, Richard Denning at first, I thought the way it was being filmed, I know there's one moment in the in the fight where uh, one of them gets pulled off a horse. There's a there's some really smart framing by William Castle that allows a stuntman to do that fall off the horse because when the when yeah. the person hits the ground, they're hidden behind uh, uh, another character playing an Indian who's in the foreground. But then when they cut into the fight, it was nice to see that it is the two actors, you know, actually doing the fight. It felt a little. And I don't mean this in a disparaging way because I absolutely adore it. But there are some moments of that fistfight that felt very Star Trek, the original series. Oh, yeah. Where a lot of the more medium shots you suspect are probably stuntmen. Mm-hmm. But when you get closer, yeah, they've swapped out the, the real actors in for that moment. And I thought it was handled incredibly well. There are a couple shots here and there where I think, well, that that's not be, the shape yeah. of Richard Denny's face. But, but it doesn't matter. It happened so quick and it's handled so mm-hmm. well in the editing. It didn't really take me out of it. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, kudos to the uh, editing team at Universal at the time who uh, must have been, you know, working. You know, they were just one film on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. But Columbia, uh, Columbia, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I they, they were definitely doing a good job because, like I, say, like I said earlier, they certainly easily enough integrated film footage that's clearly from a higher budgeted movie into this. Mm. And also, uh, the action sequences are well put together. Um, oh, yeah. I, I was impressed by uh, uh, certain certain shots, just um, the, the, the editing from one person takes a shot off, you know, at something off screen, 
and then uh, the the editing in several instances we see the shot being made and then we see the uh, bullet or the the response from the other side and they're, they're integrated they're integrated well and even in this few shots where it seems like they're pulling footage from another movie, even those are integrated well in those tightly done little gun battles. And so that's just because I'm sure the people, you know, they were pros, man. These are the, this editing team, I'm sure probably <laughs> they probably were never even completely sure when they were done with mo- one movie and went on to the next one. You know, it's like get a sandwich at the, <laughs> at the commissary and move on and keep editing whatever the next project is. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would not be surprised. I would not be surprised because. But it does all have a, a nice seamlessness to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, And I think, not to disparage the next film we're going to talk about, but this one really was my favorite of the two for all of these reasons. I'm going to completely agree with you. Not to uh, not to put a, a pall over our discussion of the next film. Uh, not not that I think it's a terrible movie or anything of that nature, but this is, oh, no. this is the one that I preferred as well, yeah. It's great stuff. Really is good stuff. And I love... <laughs> can I do what I normally do on Monster Kid Radio? Do it, man. I loved the music. <laughs> Well, I have to say, I did not even think about the music. I I mean, you know, I I didn't even think about looking into it. Uh, If you you love the music, what what about it did you love? So it's uh, George Dooning, I think is how you pronounce his last name. Uh, There's only one N uh, in Dooning. And then Misha... Oh, oh, I know that name. Um, Bakalinikov? Yes, yes, yes. You'll see that name in a lot of movies. And I get the impression that some of it might have just been music library stuff that Columbia had lying around from previous films. But that, the is, way, that is my general that is my that's yeah. been my uh, my general understanding for a lot of things of this nature, because uh, music that uh, Mishka Bakalinikov Bakalinikov. Hey, I took a shot at it. Bakalinikov yeah. uh, music that that person composed and recorded. And clearly, as work for hire, continued to show up in movies forever. I think that he was like the musical director of Columbia for a very long time, as well as a composer, which is why he would end up with a credit in a movie, even if he may have not had necessarily any hand in specifically composing anything for that movie. Exactly. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's kind of neat when you when you look at the number of things he's 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 credited for. There's a lot of stuff, and then there's a whole lot of stuff where it's uncredited for one reason or another, and I'm wondering if it's just because he was in control of the music department for some reason. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. And George Dooning, you know, I mentioned, I'm going to go back to Star Trek again. He did a lot of work for Star Trek, and oh, okay. a lot of his music would turn up in other Star Trek productions over the years because it's part of the Star Trek library now. And you and I have spoken uh, in a particular facebook group about how i'm in a star trek (laughs) cycle right now hardcore Uh star trek right now and so yeah i'm hearing his music in this and i I keep thinking to myself i'm i'm surprised how well classic star trek music actually would probably work in a western like this just didn't even occur to me but yeah it, it kind of feels like it would work so well, Dunning or Dooning, I guess Dunning is maybe the way his name is pronounced. I, I mean, I should know this, but I... Well, he was another person who, who created a lot of stock music that got used mm-hmm. in a lot of different movies. So his music turns up in 20 Million Miles to Earth, The Giant Claw, The Night the World Exploded, The 27th Day, Pal Joy. Uh, I mean, there's a the, the Hard Man, The World Was His Jury, The Phantom Stagecoach. 
Earth versus the Flying Saucers, uh, the Werewolf. So, well, the Werewolf was, of course, another Sam Casman production. So mm-hmm. that's not a big shock. So he's once again, it's mu- music that was composed and recorded for Columbia Studios, and then would get used in as many films as they wanted to. Yep, yep, and including so, the other film we're going to talk about today. And yeah, exactly. At least one of the other movies we're going to be talking about the next time we get together for this. <laughs> this is fun. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll uh, we'll talk about the second film that we're going to discuss today, The Gun That Won the West. Yeehaw. <laughs> I have no idea where that came from, but okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't either, but I'm keeping it. I love it. The Gun That Won the West, 1955. So, yes, folks, in case we hadn't mentioned it before, we're doing these in chronological order. Um, probably pretty much by chance, to be blunt. <laughs> this one, <laughs> The Gun That Won the West, uh, as soon as I saw that title, I thought, oh, is this going to be about uh, the Springfield repeating rifle? And then I, I realized, oh, wait, as soon as I started doing a little bit of research, there are about 10 different guns that have been given the title The Gun That Won the West, if you start <laughs> digging into history. Uh, everything from uh, certain specific uh, revolvers, uh, different rifles, and uh, at one point, uh, the Gatlin gun, which seems a very strange thing to just call The Gun That Won the West. In this movie, it's a very different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's close to what I would have expected from the title, but not precisely. Um, I, I remember, remember the film, the Jimmy Stewart film, Winchester 73? I love that film. Yes, I do. Well, see, that's another one of those films where you're talking about a weapon that, you know, was in some places given the title, the, the gun that won the West. And so I'm just wondering if there was a race to claim that title and this movie won. You know, I don't know. When you look up the gun that won the West, uh, just doing a Google search or something like that, it doesn't bring up the film. It brings up, uh, what gun did it bring up when I did a search for it? Uh, the Winchester, you know, the 73. So yeah, it's, I've, I've heard it. I've heard of different guns being called that. There's a, a website or an article on the website, wide open spaces that lists the five guns that won the West. So yeah, true West magazine has 22 guns that won the West. So, yeah, that's a uh, that's a larger Which list than I found. That's yeah. like all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <it's> like, <laughs> well, nevertheless, I mean, it, it, once again, we've got a seventy-minute-long B B Western programmer that 
is uh, a taking essentially a kind of historical fact, a, a real thing that happened, which was the slow introduction of the Springfield Model uh, 1865 rifle into the uh, 1880s army as regular armament so that they could fight uh, you know, the, the various tribes that the army kept, uh, kept up an ongoing war with during that period of time. And so... In this case, the gun that won the West is the Springfield model uh, repeating rifle. Uh, this was the uh, the move away from the types of weapons that were used during, uh, say, the Civil War in the 1860s, which were usually single-shot weapons that you had to load each time you fired. Um, these things were breech-loading, which meant that you could uh, take a cartridge, put it into the gun, fire it, crack crack open the uh, the breech the shell would eject and you could put another cartridge in immediately uh, and I, they at one point in the movie they rattle off the statistic that uh, so, uh, someone could fire it uh, was it tw- was it 20 times in three minutes yeah I can't remember the exact but yeah, they did have a, a pretty crazy awesome number. Yeah, especially at that period of time, because this is long before any kind of uh, cheaply made and easily available repeating rifle was uh, even on the you know on the horizon. And so right. the fact that this was something that was going to get introduced really did mean that they they would have the uh, the tribes, the various Native American tribes, outgunned in a big way. Yeah. So <clears throat> once again, this is a William Castle directed movie. Um, he was just churning them out. And the more I see of these westerns of his that he made in for Columbia, the more of his uh, ancillary films, the films that he made in that same period that I want to see, um, like you know the Iron Glove and, and uh, Drums, of Tah- Drums of Tahiti and things like that, is I want to see all of these movies that he was making at the time because it's clear this, these movies were a training ground for him. He was learning how to do things effectively, efficiently, cheaply, and with an eye toward the entire production as a unit, instead of just necessarily being a, a, a guy who was there doing a job of work. Because we all know what William Castle did. Remember, the reason we know William Castle as film nuts is because he became his own producer. He stepped away from the studio system and went and made his own movies. He made, and of course he made horror movies, thank God. Sure. Uh, so, you know, but long before this man made The House on Haunted Hill or The Tingler or any of those movies, he was learning his craft at Columbia. And this this training ground, churning out B-Western after B-Western and every kind of genre film that they would throw at him, this was what taught him how to do this stuff on a budget. Right. And um, I think... You mentioned you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the previous film that uh, sometimes the the budgetary uh, shall we say seams show a little bit more in this movie. Do you think? <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, I think so. In this one in particular, it's uh, we were talking earlier about them using footage from other films and you know stock footage, and I think there's a lot of it in this. The the buffalo hunt. I think it's a lot of stock footage. I, at least yeah. I hope it was. Oh, I certainly do because we should warn people. Um, yeah. There's some pretty gruesome footage. Uh, and, and the thing is, it wouldn't have been considered necessarily gruesome at the time this movie was made. Uh, but I have to say it was a bit of a an eye-opening vision, which was um, at a certain point, they do go on a buffalo hunt, and we do see the 
we see the beasts being hunted. We see yeah. them being shot and brought down by those shots. And then we see them being, you know, their, their, their hides being stripped and them being rendered for, uh, for meat. It was, you know, I'm, so I'm a vegetarian. I'm an animal lover. And I may be overly sensitive to these things, but it, it was difficult for me to watch. I understand. I'm not a vegetarian, but I, I am an animal lover, and I, I, I'm well aware of what being a meat eater means. Uh, mm-hmm. I grew up... Uh, I grew up spending a fair amount of time on uh, my grandfather my grandfather's farm. I've been around more than a few more than a few cows. I've had an arm inside a cow. God save me. And it's not something I want to see, regardless of the fact that I, I do eat meat. It's sure. um, I don't like watching it. And here's the thing, and this is this will be a little odd in a certain way, I suppose, but I happen to know how ridiculously we handled the herds of bison, uh, the Buffalo. Oh, were, historically. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. We did. We, were, mm, there's a lot of things that, uh, us white folk did. Well, yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was not yeah. really for the best when it came to, uh, you know, the native American population, but and that part of it's how we handled the Buffalo population. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It's when I, when I see footage of this Buffalo hunt, this is a real Buffalo hunt. It seems, I mean, we're, I mean, it has to be. I mean, we're seeing these animals being shot, and it's a little disturbing. And the more historical context you have, the 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 kind of darker that image is. And it's not meant to be that way. It's just meant to be detail of of, of the story we're being told, and mm-hmm. uh, it is a little jarring. So uh, might want to warn people with that particular sensitivity that uh just a, just a heads up yeah, yeah 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 it's uh i mean it's only a, about i'd say two minutes uh total from beginning to end some at a, at a certain point in the picture mm-hmm. but um it it, it 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 do make you stand up and take notice like i say in 1955 kids going to a, a matinee to watch this this would have just been whatever it wouldn't have i don't think it would have registered registered as anything odd or out of the ordinary and that brings me to something that I kind of, I kind of enjoy thinking about when I think about these B westerns. Now these are in color, which means uh, they were, you know, they they were a little bit more expensive than say even you know the, the very cheapest of these types of movies because at this time there was still uh, small you know very tiny studios that were still producing black and white B westerns as well. But this is Columbia, so they're shooting in color. The thing about the western is that in a way. In our culture, the Western has always kind of been a way to teach masculinity and and, uh, and to teach the basics of what was expected of a man in Western society. And yeah, for and, better or worse, you're absolutely right. Exactly. And so the models of masculinity, the models of of the heroes in these movies, the the laudable and and well-meaning men in these movies, are shown in. Uh, the, the best light that the movie can bring to it because these are broad stroke stories. These are not incredibly oh, yeah. nuanced stories. So we have, a, you know, the, what we see as, um, you know, men in our men in middle age, looking back at these movies from a distance of decades is sometimes problematic, but at the same time, any intelligent person who's going to watch these types of movies knows that these things are inherent in the works from that period of time. And that's part of it. That's why you watch them. It's, it's, it's fun to, to look at, the, at, at this kind of stuff 
and uh, marvel at the abilities of these filmmakers and the craftsmen who created them, while kind of also being a little stunned by the things that were just the standard at the time. And mm-hmm. this is, I'm assuming, a movie that would have uh, drawn in more of the younger set than the older set. Now, adults would have had no problem seeing this as well, and I'm sure that they did. But at the same time, these lower-budgeted films were made for a general audience. And when you're talking about movies that were, you know, 70 minutes in length, you're talking about double features. You're talking about kitty matinees where, you know, you've got two hours of, of uh, screen time and 70 minutes of it's the feature. You got a couple of cartoons. You got a, you got a short and the kids are in off the streets and out of everybody's hair for, for a nickel or a quarter or whatever it was. Exactly. Yeah. So when you watch this movie and you see something that to us in the 21st century is disturbing as hell, like the the bison hunt, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a wake up call in a way to remember that it's easy to get lulled into just enjoying these older films as a kind of a nostalgia for a, a different time, a, a, an enjoyment of this period of filmmaking. And being kind of not so subtly reminded every now and then of some real stark differences between the way we look at the world and uh, the way they looked at the world, I think it's instructive. And sometimes, I hate to say it, it's some of the most intriguing stuff that I get out of experiencing these movies. I kind of enjoy having my nose rubbed in the darker aspects of just common thought from the time. Uh, I mean, cause that's, that's the thing is yeah. um, any Western that you watch really is much more of a vision of the way the world was and the way people thought of the time that the film was made, not of the time being depicted necessarily, no matter how realistically and how true to the times a filmmaker or a, a screenwriter is attempting to be. Really, this is a movie that reflects more about the way society held itself in 1955 than in the 1880s. I think you get that with a lot of genre pictures, whether it's science fiction, whether it's horror, whether it's Western. Yeah. They, they really are indicative of what, or at least they can be indicative of what's going on in the society at the time in which they are made. And I think you get a lot of that in a lot of these, these Westerns. I, I was going to say that I feel like of the two that we watched today, and maybe even of all the ones that we've watched so far, this one seems to be the most overly romanticized version of the West for me. I would say so. The way they kind of the way they kind of portray things, and that was just how they portrayed the West because that's how they viewed the West and how they viewed them, the people, the society viewed themselves at the time, that sort of thing. So yeah, I totally see what you're saying there, um, and I, I enjoy that too. I mean. Over Monster Kid Radio, and the most recent film that I talk about is from the 70s, typically, right? And that's only rarely. Typically, I'm in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And the mores, the values of the society at that point, so different than what I would like to believe they are now. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I enjoy about watching these movies is the the little mini history lessons that you're getting out of these things as well. So, yeah. And and it's often to the side. It's often – far from something that you're looking directly at. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of one of the things that fascinates me about a lot of these movies. Uh, Oh yeah. Years ago, a friend of mine who has now since passed, Mm -hmm. uh, went through a, uh, a period of years where he just started watching a lot of Westerns and going through them. And the cheaper, the better. He was trying to find every B Western that he could get his hands on. And a lot of it, when I would watch these with him, a lot of the things that we discussed when we were watching them, 
once we were done discussing the 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 kind of uh, rather restricted number of plots that uh, these movies worked on, I mean, they would just cycle through about the same dozen or so plot lines, which was kind of part of the fun in spotting them. But one of the things that we found most entertaining was spotting how the way they portrayed certain events reflected exactly how the people making them at the time, which would have been, you know, the forties, the ones we were looking at at the time, the, 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 the late forties, that's how the post-war war, world war culture perceived this kind of stuff. And it's the thing that kind sure. of just bubbled up into these movies because one, they were cheaply made. These are things were shot in a couple of weeks. And so it's one of those things where you're, you're seeing someone not even think about what they're putting down on paper and not even thinking about what they're putting on film. They're just, you know, it's, it's the whole idea of you're soaking in it. So you're, 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 the fish doesn't think about drinking water. It's just there. And so watching this movie, The Gun That Won the West, and seeing how some of the things in it are just part and parcel of the way everyone thought at the time, it's fascinating. And sometimes it's more fascinating than the movie you're watching. And it's definitely true of some of those crappy black and white B-Westerns from the late 40s, let me tell you. Oh, yeah. It's something else that I also found fascinating about this is that, you know, back then they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have hundreds of different channels to watch on television. They didn't have all the resources that we have now. So for a lot of people... That was the history. That's where they got their history lessons. That was the West for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I find that fascinating, endlessly fascinating as well. Well, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to bring up about the whole idea of, you know, younger younger people, kids watching these things is that, remember, for a very long time, for a very long time, I'm talking all the way up through the 1970s, Mm -hmm. uh, there were kids who grew up thinking that you could grow up and be a cowboy. You could grow up. And that was a job you could go and get was cowboy. And that was only true if you lived in a few places in this country. (laughs) (laughs) If you were growing up in uh, Ohio, New Jersey, Minnesota, chances are good you were not going to be a cowboy. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you would see these lists of uh, grade schoolers talking about what they wanted to be when they would grow up. And you would see, you know, fireman, policeman, cowboy. Yeah, no. Fascinating. Yeah, Fascinating. yeah. It's 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 kind of amazing. And so when I find myself in a movie like this where I don't think this is as good as uh, Battle of Rogue River, I start kind of mentally looking around at different things in the movie to keep my interest because I've seen too many of these things and this one isn't holding my interest as much as I, as much as it probably would have if I'd seen it when I was younger. So I'm looking around the edges. And one of the things that I keep seeing in this is I like the way that Richard Denning's character, although it is a very basic A to B character change, I like watching his character change. Okay. Uh, And, you know, he's, he's definitely got a drinking problem at the beginning of the movie. And, he is a complete drunken jerk at a pivotal moment in the story. <laughs> <laughs> and then by the end of it, the signifier that he is going to be a better person than that he is actually being a better person is because he's off the sauce. This is the, I mean, it's simplistic, obviously, but it, it rings true to talk to any alcoholic. Yeah, you've got to reach bottom before you get any better. That's the way it goes. You either reach bottom and you die or you reach bottom and you realize, wow, this has got to change. 
in very broad strokes, that is Richard Denning's character in this movie, Dakota Jack. That's what happens with him. Mm-hmm. So there's your there's your character growth, A to B. <laughs> there's not a big there's not a big arc. It's not really complicated. It's not incredibly nuanced at all. But it does add just enough color to this movie that, to my mind, there's a more interesting movie in just focusing on his character arc. Yes. If that were the whole movie, mm-hmm. that would have been amazing. But they don't have time for that. <laughs> That's not what the movie's about. He is there to be the uh, the plot uh, the plot pusher at one specific point, and then later in the film, by trying to be a better man, he pushes the plot forward a second time. And that's because we're in a B western, man. But at the same time, that is a that is exactly the kind of image, the kind of the kind of character arc that would be perfect to see mirrored for children, for younger viewers. Because it shows them, okay, being a drunk is bad. Being a drunk is the kind of thing that makes even the people who love you the most have to walk away from you. And so there's a bit of a moral story here. There's a bit of a... And, it's not, and I have to say this, it's not moralistic. It doesn't, feel, uh, it doesn't feel artificial. It doesn't feel saccharine. It doesn't feel syrupy. It feels, strangely enough, fairly realistic. And the reason it's kind of realistic is that they don't get into the details of that nuanced move of cha- that that change of character from one you know from A to B. Sure. Uh, whereas what I really would have enjoyed maybe is a bit more detail in that. But if they got into the details, maybe it would have become mawkish. Uh, maybe it would have become something that I wouldn't have enjoyed as much. But there's still a part of me that thinks, man, I'd like to see Richard Denning getting to dig into more of this. Yeah, I. You know, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier, too, when we were talking about the changes that he goes through in the first film we talked about versus this one. There is one yeah. heck of a journey there. He goes from a guy who can't stop drinking to I'm going to clean myself up and get this all worked out. That's fascinating. We didn't get to see any of it, unfortunately. No. But maybe, like you said, maybe it's a good thing we didn't because – that's not necessarily the story that we're seeing here. It's not the story we're being told anyway. I would have been fascinated by it. I don't know if I've ever seen like a recovering alcoholic type story set in a low budget Western kind of setting. I, I, it might be fun to see. I don't know. Well, I've seen that kind of thing in a Western, but it wasn't a low budget one. And it, it definitely was a movie with a much broader scope where that was one of several characters. And the whole point of the movie was to show character growth over time of different characters. Okay. Um, but it's not, you're right. This is a B Western. I'm, I'm looking for something because I like watching Richard Denning on screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking for something this movie is never, has, was never set out to do. <laughs> this movie is here to be, uh, uh, an adventure story. That's what this is. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about that adventure story and let's decide whether or not, uh, we like parts of it or we like most of it, or we like some or none or all of it. Let's see. <laughs> Um, cause I mean, th- th- this is, this is going to rise or fall. It's going to succeed or fail on whether or not it's, uh, a, an, inter- an entertaining adventure film. And, you know, besides the, the, the bison slaughter we get to witness, <laughs> let's talk about the movie Boy, as a movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Okay. Um, so basic plot outline, uh, Colonel Carrington and his command are assigned the job of constructing a chain of forts in the Sioux Indian Territory of Wyoming during the 1880s. The colonel recruits former cavalry officers turned frontier scouts Jim Bridger, 
played by Dennis Morgan, and Dakota Jack Gaines, played by Richard Denning, to help him in this particular task. Now, the movie actually starts off by showing us that um, Bridger and Dakota Jack are making a pretty decent living running a Wild West show. Um, making, it, make, making a pretty penny, but the problem is that uh, Dakota Jack, the Richard Denning character, often, uh, he, he's supposed to be the centerpiece of the show. He's supposed to be the guy who's, it, it's pretty obvious that this is kind of fashioned uh, as a, a kind of Ertzat pseudo um, Wild Bill Hickok, you know, the guy who... yeah. Uh, who was in the Wild West shows with the the, the, the long flow you know the long flowing blonde locks the the guy who was you know famously made a lot of money because of the legend that was built up around him that's the Dakota Jack character but when we are introduced to the Wild West show at the beginning of the movie the, uh, Dakota Jack's wife played by Paula Raymond uh, is sitting in the stands and is and is very disappointed when Dakota Jack quote unquote appears. And uh, she leaves and goes back, and, and we discover that uh, Dakota Jack Gaines uh, has a tendency to drink way too much to even be able to play himself in the stinking Wild West show. And so his buddy Jim Bridger has to step in and put on a wig and pretend to be him so that the crowd gets what they're there for. This is, uh, this, this is pretty cool because it's fun to see a movie uh, try to uh, incorporate something as expansive and as expensive as demonstrating a Wild West show. And this this is footage, obviously, is from a different film. Oh, there's one in particular shot that did not age very well, and I don't know if it's how it was processed or, or if it looked like this to begin with, but there's one particular shot where we're up in the stands behind mm-hmm. the audience looking at the Wild West show happening. That just It, it feels like a process shot. It's pretty rough. <laughs> around yeah, the edges i agree I, I, and, and 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 they they don't do a good a, a very good job of integrating the one shot that we get of dennis morgan as bridger in the you know riding out pretending that he's dakota jack they don't do a good job of editing that in because i don't really think they could have found a way yeah agreed by letting afraid of horses live we thought red cloud would be more apt to listen to reason for the last two weeks i've been trying to get red cloud here for a conference but he's always refused Less than an hour ago, his messenger came in to tell us that he's consented to talk and that he'll be here tomorrow. You think it'll do any good? Well, if we can get a decent treaty, this time we might be able to enforce it. How? With 500 men against 8,000? With that new Springfield gun you saw in Washington. You gonna wait until you get the new guns before you take the expedition out? No, there's no time. We've got to start preparatory work as soon as possible. You knew in Washington what you were getting into. Now, wait a minute. I never even we had thought a... there might be a chance you'd wait for the new guns. Thanks, but I'll think up my own excuses. What's the trouble, Jim? Nothing that a bath and a little sleep won't cure. It was a pretty rough trip. Fine. Quarters are ready for you. Thank you, Colonel. I have to say that the story being told here is not nearly as interesting to me as the Battle of Rogue River. This is, uh, I thought it was going to be. I really did. Because I like the setup of having this trio of characters. You've got Bridger, uh, Dakota Jack, and Dakota Jack's wife. And it seems like that's what the film is really going to going to circle around. This is what the movie is primarily going to be about. This char- these, uh, these three characters going through some different things and how, what that does to their relationships. But unfortunately, the movie really kind of only glancingly plays along with those three characters. They're integral to what's going on, and they're certainly actors within the story. But there's only one point at which you think things are going to get really complicated. 
Uh, and that's uh, after they get to the um, to the fort where they're you know they well, well this this I'll say is interesting. Why I kept thinking this was going to be a very interesting setup was that Dakota Jack's wife really wants him to stop drinking because he she sees just how how destructive this is being. And she and Bridger decide to to when they get the offer or when they get the 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 request to help out by uh, going to help set up these different forts in the uh, Sioux Nation, they sell the Wild West show out from under Dakota Jack when he's drunk, which I think is great. That now all of this is off screen uh, because once again it's a B Western. We got seventy minutes here. We can't be even clogging it up with all the details of this stuff, right? <laughs> but I do right. think it's intriguing that. We start off with Dakota Jack being, I mean, suitably hacked off as they head out, as they head out, oh, yeah. because he was making a fair amount of money doing this and apparently could stay drunk all day while making a lot of money. I can understand liking that. <laughs> that's not something that, <laughs> not something that's easy to walk away from, especially when you, you know, get sold out from underneath you when you're, uh, when you're passed out. But this is the, you know, you have this triangle here and that there is a certain point as the movie goes on when the Bridger character just says straight out to uh, Mrs. Gaines, look, do you want me to make love to you? Is that what you want? <laughs> Which I I knew it was kind of being set up for. Is there yeah. going to be a love triangle thing going on here? But that was awfully blunt. <laughs> but I think that's, that. that's what that I have to say. I liked it because he knows damn good and well that that's not what she wants. But right. she's starting to think in that direction at that point in the story because she's just had to walk away from her husband because he's determined that he's just not going to be of use in this entire project. And I think it's, it, I think it was, it's, it's like a verbal blast of cold water in your face. That's what he was doing to her right then is okay. making her, making her examine what's really going on here. Hey, is that what you want to have her face it and have it out in the open so that she could, she could realize, no, that's really not what I want. That's that, that would be ridiculous. That would, that would be the wrong move at this point in our, in our lives. And I think that that, I I like that because that is the kind of bizarrely adult moment in a movie like this. Uh, Because I can see if you really wanted to infantilize this this story just a little bit if you wanted to bring it down to a kind of a younger audience where you didn't bring those kind of ideas into play what you would do is just ignore that whole concept together altogether it wouldn't even be something that was brought up it would be completely ignored everything would be completely chased there would not be a mention of this kind of thing at all whereas it's this is a bit of a this is a, a somewhere between actually an adult conversation about this and ignoring it altogether. It's just, let me just splash you in the face with this, have the, have those characters acknowledge this possibility and then move past it, which I kind of had to respect the script a little bit for. Uh, I'm sure it was done for, you know, economy. We're trying to, you know, we're trying to keep the, the runtime down because what we want to take up the runtime with is adventure stuff, but we've got to address this or it's just going to look weird. And so they did it in this way. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty a pretty good uh, in between point for telling this kind of story. I can see that. Uh, for me, it kind of came out of the blue, but yeah, I think it's because I had been kind of conditioned to thinking that these are a bunch of things they played on a matinee, kids in the audience, that sort of thing, and was not expecting that kind of a blunt. <laughs> Is this what you want? You know, but having heard what you had to say, it makes sense. So, well, I mean, that's that's the thing. Is that um, once again we're talking about a script written by. Um, 
oh darn, what's his name? Richard Richard E. Kent. Uh, he was he was he was um, he was writing under a pen name James Gordon. But this guy wrote a lot of movies, a lot of movies. Uh, J- Jesse James versus the Daltons is another one we've already covered. The when you when you look at his credits, it's clear that whatever project was put in front of him. I mean this this guy is responsible for the the screenplay for Guns, Girls, and Gangsters. Well, Got, sign me up for that. that precisely. Don't don't <laughs> knock the rock. Twist around the clock. Don't knock the twist. Okay, so you're looking at that and you're going, in other words, he's trying to find a way to string together uh, just enough of a story to get popular bands of the day on screen to perform. But then he also wrote the uh, Corman-produced, the Corman-directed Tower of London with Vincent Price, Diary of a Madman by Vincent Price, with Vincent Price, Twice Told Tales of Vincent Price. This is... <laughs> This is pretty cool stuff. He also wrote one of my favorite um, un, uh, movie, movies that uh, tip over into camp a little bit. Have you ever seen Hot Rods to Hell? <laughs> I have. Okay, I love Hot Rods to Hell because it's so stinking serious and it's hard <laughs> to take it seriously now. It was made in 1967 uh-huh. with Dana Andrews and Mimsy Farmer and it really, it man, uh, it's... It's glorious to watch because they did not know that they were making a movie that was eventually going to be a comedy. I'm telling you now. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But he wrote that, too. And it just points to me that this is a guy who was um, he he knew how to tell a story. He was good at it and he could he could turn out a script on whatever subject you required from him. I wonder I would love to see I would love to see an interview with this guy with Richard Kent to discover what he thought of his career, how he approached these kinds of things. Um, Cause he had his hands in both the movies we're talking about in this episode. And mm-hmm. while they're, you know, they're both Westerns they're you know, they're B Westerns. They're very similar. He had such a huge variety of stories and ideas that he played with over the course of his career. I would just love to know what his thoughts were on this. Did he see this as just, you know, did he see it as, I hope not, but did he see it as hack work or did he see it as something that you just applied yourself to as a workman or did he, you know, try to fit pieces of his own inspiration into these things from time to time? And could he, and if so, man, I'd like to, I'd like to hear from him. I'd like to know what he thought of as his best work. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, man, it's, it's a shame that, I mean, it kind of goes with the territory, right? We love these movies, but so many of the people that were involved with them are no longer with us, if any. Yeah. So it's, it's a shame that we'll never be able to, you know, track him down, get an interview, or, or just chat with him a little bit. The best we can hope for is maybe any interviews he gave while he was still alive, and, and I wouldn't even know where to begin. Well, the only place I know like to that. begin, and it, and, it, and unfortunately, it's it's it depends on when he got started. Is the this long you know the long series of of interview books that Tom Weaver has put out where. He right. talks to as many of the people that were involved in um, the the films that he loved growing up, which would be you know films in the fifties, sixties, and seventies. Is it the fact that he you know that he interviewed as many of those people as he could? It's it's those books that I look to where I start digging into and reading these interviews with these folks. And sometimes for a lot of these folks, it's the only time they are ever on record about some of this stuff. Right. And it's just I've got I, I want to do now that I'm thinking about it, I, I want to do a hunt. I want to try to find some information and see if anybody ever had a long sit down conversation about his career with Richard Kent. I think it could be fairly fascinating. He's he's one of those guys who 
you know, when you start realizing how many of his, uh, when you start realizing how many of his films you've actually seen, it's fascinating. You, you realize that there's something there. You've enjoyed so much of what he's had a hand in that you'd kind of like to know a little bit more about the guy. If nothing else, I want to know more about the song that he wrote for his film, The Fastest Guitar Alive, the song being called Snuggle Huggle. I want to know more about that. <laughs> Snuggle Huggle. Well, Fastest Guitar Alive is is very famous, you know, because it, it stars Roy Orbison. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's a movie I've heard about for years, but still never seen. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it either, but Snuggle Huggle. <laughs> I, I need to hear that. You know, when we're done here, I'm going to go on YouTube and look that up. I want to hear what it sounds like. <laughs> uh, well, you know, um, I think I'm probably going to end up doing the same thing. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Dear listener, if at this point you now hear a song from The Fastest Guitar Alive, I apologize. <laughs> pistolero, pistolero, where do you ride? Pistolero, pistolero, you ride alone tonight. One of brothers, five one day, vowed to try to make his way. Joined the cattle drive to Mexico. Threw in with some banditos, yeah, he learned their lingo. Killed a man, they call him Pistolero Five thousand pesos they put on your head Five thousand pesos to get you alive Or dead Ride on, ride hard in Vaquero Fast as you can to her side I'll bust for mucho dinero A candle burns Waiting there for your return The candle is out Pistolero I see the cabin down below Pistolero, let her go Tonight you're mine Pistolero Five thousand pesos they put on your head But 
Uh, okay, since we're talking to the listeners, listeners, if you know of any resources or places where Robert E. Kent might have talked about his career, let Rod know. And Rod, please let me know if you find anything, because <laughs> I'd like to know more, too. Uh, yeah, maybe I should maybe I should contact Tom Weaver. Hey, did you ever get to interview this guy? He he wrote the werewolf for Sam Katzman. Surely you talked to him, right? Yeah, that's a good point. He I'm, I'm, he might have. I'm, he's talked to almost everybody at this oh, point. Oh my goodness! But at any rate, uh, with the gun that won the West, what what I you know what we end up with is these three characters placed into this situation where Bridger has to take point to help the um, the colonel try to set up these forts and luckily the colonel is smart enough to listen to bridger who uh is familiar with his territory familiar with the tribes in this area and therefore can instruct him on where it would be a, a better idea to try to build these forts if you're going to do it don't do it where the the command told you to do it do it here because it's more defensible things of that nature but the uh the bridger and Gaines are, are are they're both they've both been friendly with the sioux chief red cloud and they're, they're confident that a peace treaty could probably be worked out with the Sioux. But if war breaks out, the cavalry is going to be depending on uh, getting a new type of breech-loading Springfield rifle. And it's that, though it's the uh, waiting for those rifles to show up, that is kind of keeping the army on uh, tender hooks to a, to a large degree because they're not sure that uh, if they had to engage in some kind of pitched battle with the Indians before those rifles arrive whether uh, they'd win or not, especially since they're driving into the Indians' territory. So in a way, the movie is trying to spend a bit more time on establishing some tension about when the rifles are going to arrive and how the arrival of these dangerous weapons are going to change the dynamic between the army and the Indian tribes. <laughs> and Richard Denning makes it very clear that he thinks they're going to win. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, during his drunken sprawl, yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. It, it, it is nice to see that Denning does clean himself up and get, get sober <laughs> by the time the rivals, the rifles show up. And I have to say, it's such a simple scene. But the scene where they actually demonstrate the effectiveness and accuracy of the of the Springfield rifle, I still I love those kind of scenes in movies. I know it's kind of silly because you know how they're doing it because the camera is set up where you're looking uh, toward the people who are firing on this this impromptu firing range. And so the camera is in one place in the foreground are the things that they're shooting. And in the background are the people doing the shooting. So nobody is shooting at the camera people. This is all a setup, but I still love, oh, yeah. I still love those kind of scenes. <laughs> There's just something about them, man. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Once the, once the rifles arrive, Bridger and uh, quite a few people, I, I, We'll have to say that it, it took a, a lot of uh, sharp writing to convince me to not pay too much attention to the fact that the army was driving into Indian territory to start building a fort and were willing to take along a lot of civilians uh, at the same time. It seemed to me that that would have been an illogical thing to do. Now, I know that that was done. Historically, that was something that was done because uh, they would need the the civilian people there but there were a few women along and you know miss Gaines being one of them and it seems to me that that uh that would just make it a, a little bit too uh risky to keep those people safe when you're you know supposedly there to do construction but 
hey, I understand we got to get the women out there, got to get them in danger so that uh, there's all that much more of a through line trying to get the uh, the pathetic Dakota Jack drunk turned into the heroic Dakota Jack who can come and save the day and try to do the right thing. It's bad to say, but my favorite scene in the movie is watching uh, Richard Denning uh, play drunk and make an ass out of himself in front of the Indians. That that's 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 the highlight of this movie for me and it shouldn't be it really shouldn't be but it is it is for me it's for me too though i am right there with you that's it's richard denning hammy hammy excuse me hamming yeah he's getting all hammy yes, for he us. Is. hamming it up there we go yeah my cold is preventing me from saying certain <laughs> words hamming it up for us without going so far over the top that it gets overly mm-hmm. campy i love that bit it's like uh, well we got all these guns it's just great i love it well, now here's the thing: the guy, the actor oh. who plays uh, Jim Bridger, is actually really good. He's one of those solid actors. Dennis Morgan is his name. He's one of those solid actors who had a really long career, made a lot of movies, and has been in a number of things that I've seen over the years. But he's just a solid, good actor. I remember his face because he's got a he's, he's a good looking guy, as you would expect. But he's never somebody who's ever stood out before in a film for me. Um, I remember, I, like I said, I've seen him in. A lot of different movies. The Return of Dr. X, River's End, Kitty Foyle, Captain of the Clouds I saw him in years ago, um, Christmas in Connecticut. And he's one of those guys, once you see him, you'll rec- you'll remember his face. He's got a distinctive face. But as much as I've thought he was he was, he was was good and, and serviceable and just, you know, exactly what he needed to be in, in different roles I've seen him in over the, over the years. And this one I actually really got, you get to, you get to spend some time with him as Bridger. And I really enjoyed it because I think he's quite good in this. And it shows that he, he had the capability. I mean, he play, he was a leading man sort of in this movie. That solid, heroic guy who seems to be mm-hmm. someone who can, you know, can can rest a lot of weight on his shoulders. He can carry the load. He's just he, he's going to he's going to get it done. And it seems to me that it would be possible to watch a number of his movies. And he played in, he played in a lot of dramas, some costume dramas, things of that nature. He's got the kind of face that would fit almost any period, it seems. Because I've seen him in movies that took place in um, modern day, and it didn't seem he didn't seem out of place. He seemed perfectly natural. You know, there's some actors who just they don't seem they don't seem right. Was, Slim Pickens. Doesn't I mean I'm willing to buy him in Doctor Strangelove, but Slim Pickens just seems like he needs to be in the 1800s. All right, that's just I don't know what it is. I, I was willing to buy him in in the Howling because he eventually becomes a werewolf. That's fine, but this the, the, Dennis Morgan's one of those actors who seems to be at home and comfortable wearing this Western costume, and yet I've seen him in you know wearing a, a costume that can only be described as a dandy. In uh, in different things, you know, in different things, I really have, you know, <laughs> and he's pretty, and he's pretty good sure. at these things. No, I, I agree. I think he's he's definitely got that look where he could melt, be, be uh, not melt, but kind of just be inserted into different genre stuff. I mean, he's done a lot of westerns, clearly, but he also did a lot of mm-hmm. television. Uh, just he he seems like one of these guys that would fit well in a lot of different films. And playing the Jim Bridger character, Jim Bridger was a real dude. Yeah, was a real guy. Uh, I don't know if he, I don't think he was really involved with any Wild West shows, but at least in this particular instance, we have a real historical person being portrayed in this. So, well, well, we're going to see uh, Mr. Morgan in another 
William Castle directed Western the next on the next episode that we do. Um, and I, okay. I, I'm wondering how much how much FaceTime he gets in that one. I don't know if he's the star or not. I haven't looked ahead, but he's he's quite good in this. And there is that part of me that wishes that that he had gotten to play a kind of you know character triangle, love triangle of sorts between him and Richard Denning. Uh, with Paula Raymond at the center, I think it could have been really interesting, but that's not what we get. Uh, were you familiar with Paula Raymond? Now that we're talking about the actors, of course. <laughs> yeah, so she's Dakota's wife, uh, mm-hmm. the one who conspires with Jim to sell the the show out from underneath him when he's drunk. I'm not overly familiar with her. Well, she, she is uh, Lee Hunter. She played Lee Hunter in The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Oh, that's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which is where, you know, geeks like you and I are going to know her from. Mm-hmm. But she was also in one of my absolute favorite uh, movies from the 50s. The absolutely brilliant film, The Tall Target. Oh, um, I've not seen that. It is, I would call it a film noir, but it's a film noir that actually takes place in 1861. Oh, wow. Um, star, it was, it's an Anthony Mann film, and Anthony Mann didn't make nothing but good movies, so just, just strap in. As soon as you see it was directed by Anthony Mann, you're in, you know you're in good hands. Okay. Uh, but it stars Dick Powell, and she is the lead the, the lead uh, actress in the film. But it, if you ever get to see The Tall Target, please do. It's only about an hour and 20 minutes, and it is tight as a banjo string, man. Powell plays a New York City detective traveling by train between New York and Baltimore who ends up trying to foil uh, an assassination an assassination attempt on uh, newly elected president Abraham Lincoln before he reaches Baltimore to give oh. his uh, pre-inauguration speech in, in 1861 the movie is awesome I mean man and I remember her from that everybody's good in this movie but it's this little you know B budgeted crime film set in you know set in 1861 it play it plays very much like a film noir because that's kind of what was being made at the time it's good it's so good if she if i had never seen her in anything else just her just her role in a tall target would make her someone that i would just i would bow down for and buy her dinner she's wonderful (laughs) okay we'll have to check that movie out oh it's good plus i'm just a huge dick powell fan i just i just love dick powell i think he's amazing He's one of those actors who I never cease to be amazed at someone who had the talent of Dick Powell, who started off as a singer, was a big radio star, did a bunch of comedies, then uh, segued into playing private eye roles, and then uh, turned himself into a film director. Uh, He's just one of those guys. Dick Powell is just one of my heroes in Hollywood. He just did so much and was so good at all of it. But now we're not we're not talking about Dick Powell. This is this is another this is another film we're talking about. I'm sorry. Uh, well, when I see the Tall Target, I'll let you know what I thought of it because oh, now man. it's going to end up on the list of movies to see. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Believe me, that add that one to your list because when you eventually do see it, you're just going to enjoy the crap out of it. But Paula Raymond, she she has kind of a thankless role here. Uh, she has some good scenes early on where there's some real meat to what she has to pull off in those scenes where she's uh, dealing with her drunken husband. And kind of trying to be a good wife about it. And she has some really good scenes with Dennis Morgan as Bridger. Uh, and then as the film goes on, she gets less and less screen time. And that is a real shame because, like I say, I still think that's where the movie could have improved itself by spending a little bit more time on that on those characters. Oh, yeah. Uh, but she kind of gets shunted to the side, uh, which I guess makes sense. We are talking about a Western here. Can't have the chicks clogging up the screen. Oh, no. <laughs> 
Wow. Okay. For the record, this is Rod's podcast, not mine. I'm not saying that. No. <laughs> well, I'm not saying I'm happy about it, but hey, that's the way it would have been thought of. Yeah. <laughs> get, yeah. get the get the women off screen. This ain't little women. Let's go. Whoa, okay. <laughs> it's not Pride and Prejudice. We're not talking about all that crap. Come on. Come on. Pull out the guns. Let's get to shooting. <laughs> well, so as this film winds to its conclusion, the, the basic idea is, you know, are we going to have a pitched battle where we start mowing down Indians with Springfield rifles or is everybody going to realize what a bad idea this would be? And I guess we can leave that up to the discovery of the people who uh, sit down to watch these William Castle Westerns when they get the chance. But um, I think we both already talked about the fact that we, you know, we like this one less than Battle of Rogue River. Um I've talked about what I would like to have seen. You know, I would like to have seen, you know, some more time spent on the, on the, um, the love triangle or the not real love triangle, the thing that they're very smartly walk around without doing. But I also think that they could have gone a little further into the, I hate to say it, but Indian fighting. It could have been a, a movie that segued nicely into just, you know, pitched battles between the army and the native Americans. And I don't think they had the budget to do that. So you kind of get something that's kind of stuck in between because the movie, the the second half of the movie isn't the same as the first half of the movie. Yeah. I think when Richard Denning is no longer drunk, <laughs> it does kind of <laughs> shift gears for me a little bit. Yeah. I think yeah. Right. yeah. And it becomes, I hate to say it, it becomes a little less interesting. I found my I found my attention, you know, kind of wandering around a little bit past a certain point because it's it's like okay, I, I kind of see where this is going to go. The only real question is whether or not, you know, this is going to be peace or war. That's that's really it because the movie and, and because the film doesn't have clearly the budget to make the uh, war portion of things kind of what it would need to be, as in like all out battles. Right. Uh, I I, I kind of know that it's not. It's probably even if it goes that way, not going to be that interesting or that uh, exciting, I should, I guess would probably be the best way to put it. But I mean, I don't think it's a bad film. I just think that unfortunately uh, the best parts of it for me are in the first half. Yeah, I think so too. I agree with you, which is why we get along. So <laughs> <laughs> there are many reasons why we get along. Well, there's um, one, one, we don't live in the same state, so you can't smell me. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) see how he submarines himself, people. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, I haven't had a shower today. I'm pretty rank. Uh, (laughs) Thanks for sharing, I guess. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. Listener, I apologize. Sometimes Rod overshares. (laughs) So... So far, uh, if we'd done the if we'd done these, and once again, folks, I'd like to apologize for the fact that it took us far too long to get to uh, the the second half of this William Castor, Castle Western set. Of these two, we know which one we prefer. Do we have enough of a memory of the previous four to be able to judge oh. them and rank them? Because I don't. I can tell you right now, I don't. I remember enjoying Klondike Kate quite a bit. That was a lot of fun, but I also really liked Masterson of Kansas a lot. Yeah, I did too. I don't know. I, I oh. Well, I would say that so far, probably, oh, I'm leaning toward Battle of Rogue River. But Really? Okay. I, I'd have to go back and kind of reacquaint myself with the other ones because, like you said, it's been since April and what is it, December now? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how many movies have I watched since? <laughs> <laughs> probably at least two or three, right? Oh, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. 
Do you keep track of the uh, movies that you watch from I, month to I, month? I do. <laughs> hey, I do too. That's not a bad thing, dude. That's a good thing. Uh, I don't know. I get a little uh, OCD about it because I track every movie, when I watched it, where I watched it, what genre it is. Uh, wow. Was it a feature length? Was it a short film? Was it hosted by a horror host? Okay. Was it you, the first you, time I watched it? <laughs> you've gone too far. You need medication, man. Something. Uh, let's see. So far, 230 movies watched this year. Well, now see, I don't keep a I don't keep a tally of the total. See, because what I do is, as I just you know, each month I, I keep a list of the movies that I watch, and then because I use it on the blog, I post it up on the blog. Every movie, that, right. you know, I post up the list at the end of each month. The funny thing is, is I'm always paranoid about forgetting one because I'll I'll realize that I haven't made notes about the fact that I've watched two movies since the last time I like made notations. Uh-huh. And I, I become paranoid that I've forgotten one, and so I'll I'll be adding things to it and then sit there and go. Wait, wasn't there something else? Wasn't there one other thing? Wasn't yeah. There, I think there was something else. That's pretty bad. This one, I actually had forgotten to write down that I had watched this one because whatever I watched right after it came hard on the heels of it. And it was only after I'd watched Battle of Rogue River that I realized that I hadn't made a note about oh, no. the gun that won the West. Oh, that was that was a heart-stopping moment for the sad little movie geek that I am. I, I felt like such a loser. Um no, I've got a Google spreadsheet with you know, all these, uh, all the numbers, so I can tell you that seventy percent of the, oh yeah, seventy percent of the movies that I've watched so far this year were feature length. Eighty-one um, oh, percent of okay. them were first-time viewings. Uh, <laughs> here's okay. Here's how sad I, I I'm gonna. This is uh, people. I'm gonna. This is a bit of an overshare. I just felt a level of superiority over Derek because I was. I only keep my list. On a Word document. That is so embarrassing of me. Holy oh, no. God. It's a Google Doc. And yeah. I suddenly honestly felt superior to you because I wasn't as bad as you. Holy oh, crap. No. That's so bad. That's so stupid oh, of me. I got all the percentages and all the genres. And uh, and I do the same thing with books. I mean, not as in-depth, but... Yeah. Well, my problem with keeping track of books is I am always in the middle of three to five different books Yeah. because I'll be like, for instance, I'm in the middle of two different short story collections. It's like, you know, I come to a point and I'll like put a bookmark in and and walk away. And there are two, I'm in the middle of two different nonfiction books almost all the time. It's pathetic. Well, Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to share with you, Rod, um, how bad it is for me. I'll send you a screenshot of what I'm looking at right now. So <laughs> okay. watch for that coming later today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was, it was the other day. It was so, it was so funny. Uh, my girlfriend and I were out someplace. We were at this restaurant where we normally, uh, we, we, after we eat, we just sit around and uh, drink hot tea and hot coffee and read for a while because it's a very comfortable place and they let you do it. And uh, I pulled out the book that I was reading and she said, oh, you're oh, you're still reading that. And I said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm reading this and like three other books. And this is the, this is the one that I brought along today. And she said, I would have thought you would have read that really fast. It's the um, it's a, a book about the uh, the rise and fall of uh, prog rock, progressive rock called uh, the, the the show that never ends. Uh, OK. Uh, it's by Dave Weigel. It's a really great book. And she's right. It's right up my alley. It's something that I find fascinating. And she's right. If I were only reading it, I would have been done with it. <laughs> I would have zipped through it so quickly. All 400 pages of it would have been behind me weeks ago. But unfortunately, I'm reading three other books, too. So <laughs> it, it tends to slow yeah. me down. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of books, mm-hmm. 
you know, as an author yourself, oh, you should pimp your segue. books. Look at this segue. <laughs> so, Derek, I just saw recently someone pushing you to publish more of your short fiction. Tell the folks about your short fiction. Oh, listen to you, man. This is so, oh, wow. <laughs> I don't even have to ask to, to pimp my stuff. Oh. So. Earlier this year, I released a collection of short stories called uh, Supernatural Solutions. Excuse me. The book was called Monster Hunter for Hire. Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files is the name of the series because it will, in fact, be a series of of uh, releases. It's a, As of right now, Monster Hunter for Hire is the only one out. It is a collection of five short stories featuring uh, this character called Mark Temple, who is an exterminator who specializes in supernatural uh pests so if you have a problem yeah yeah so you know if you uh wake up one day and find that your place has been overrun by zombies and you need somebody to deal with it well just call mark temple his rates are negotiable and he'll take care of you he works discreet you know no big deal uh in this collection of short stories uh we we do see him deal with some vampires some werewolves uh some werewolves, and then uh, yeah, a few other baddies here and there. I don't want to spoil it too much. Oh, well, yeah, there's some good stuff in there. I won't spoil it either. There's some really good – I really enjoyed that collection. We talked oh, about God. it last time, yeah. I'm so glad to hear that, man. I really am. Uh, our friend Dominique Lamsey just recently posted a review asking for more books. That's who you were referring to. And uh, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I told her there will be more. Uh, you know, recently I sat down with uh, another fellow writer and monster kid of mine, um, Chris McMillan, who's been on the show quite a bit. And you met him at Monster Bash this past yep. year. Uh, and Chris and I, and, and Dominique, too, we, we get together like every other month or so and just kind of powwow about our writing and what we're going to do next and that sort of thing. And after talking with Chris and then seeing that post from Dominique, I've decided that the next release will be another collection of Mark Temple stories. And if you'd like, I can even give you an exclusive and tell you what the name of the collection will be because I've not Ooh. mentioned that anywhere. Ooh, yes. Go ahead. <laughs> Call for a quote. Call for, call for a quote. I like that. Call for a quote. Uh, Supernatural Solutions to Mark Temple Case Files Volume 2 will be coming in 2020, and it will have at least five new short stories in it uh, that will, will be more monster hunting adventures. And we're going to learn a little bit more about Mark Temple's background, why he does what he does, how he was drawn to it. He is a former FBI agent. That is mentioned in the uh, the first collection. We're going to learn a little bit more about that in Volume 2. So that will be coming next year stay tuned excellent excellent news so uh more mark temple in 2020 that's exciting uh tell me something this is just a this is a sideline thing and this may not be something that you even think of but are you um have you ever considered writing a longer piece because these are all short stories do you have a novel idea or are these all or are you just more focused on keeping them at short lengths so mark temple came to life as a short story character. That, that's mm -hmm. where he started. And I've been having a lot of fun just doing these little short stories in and out, getting Mark Temple into a case, seeing him struggle to solve the case, and, <laughs> and, and eventually getting out of it, whether or not he's scarred in the process. You know, it's for you to decide or discover when you read the stories. The next release will be the short stories, but I do have a novel in mind. Uh, the nice thing about the short stories, at least for me as a writer, is that I only really have to deal with one character point of view, one main character. It's Mark. You know, yeah. He's doing his thing. There are other characters in the stories, and my favorite story from the first collection does have him interact with a few other people, and I really had fun with that. And I think with the novel, we will have more characters in Mark's life, and you know, it'll just be a, a longer tale. Uh, I've got a working title in mind that I'm not quite ready to reveal 
just yet, but uh, I'm laying some seeds for it in volume two. Cool, cool, cool. Um, I see that you are uh, maintaining your speed with uh, Monster Kid Radio, some a speed that I could never match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just did episode 448 this week, and uh, I don't know when this episode will be going out. Will it be going out in December? Uh, this will be going out late December, right after Christmas. Okay, so yeah, we are in the middle of, or towards the tail end of Dan Simber over on Monster Kid Radio, talking about Dan Curtis Productions. Uh, we'll be talking about the movie Burnt Offerings, uh, Night of Long Shadows, the Norlis tapes. Just having fun with that. And then in January, we'll be talking about uh, movies that have a satanic influence when we dive into the satanic rites of January. Which cool. Will fun, which will be fun. Then we got uh, uh, The Seventh Guest, uh, Satanic Rites of Dracula, Devil uh, Devil Rides Out. Movies like that are going to be lined, uh, lined up for that. And then... Uh, yeah, we even have February kind of planned out with flashback February where we're going to revisit some movies that we've talked about in the past on Monster Kid Radio, but it's been a long time and mm-hmm. we want to talk about them again, bring somebody else in to talk about it. Like Scott Morris will be coming on to talk about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Cool. And I'm working on getting Frank Dietz on to talk about Island of Terror. So just got to make that happen. So yeah, we've got, got a lot of things coming up on MKR and you know, Plan 9 by 9 will be wrapped up here within the next few weeks. Cool, uh, cool. May even be done by the time this episode comes out, if I can make it happen. Learned by the way, for fo- that folks, uh, yeah. if you're unaware, Plan 9 by 9 is uh, a separate podcast that Derek has been doing with uh, one, co- uh, one co-host and then a revolving number of gr- right. guest co-hosts where they're covering uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space in nine-minute chunks. That's right. It's been a lot of fun. Scott Morris and I are the, the main hosts on that. And then every week we have somebody else on. I'm actually editing an episode right now where it's me and Scott and then our wives talking about a nine minute segment of Plan 9 by, uh, from Outer Space. And that's just it's been a real eye opening experience regarding the film as well as my own podcast production abilities and then timelines and what I'm doing. I've learned a lot and we're going to apply those lessons to the next one, which will be launching next year where we take a look at the classic film, the film that everybody knows and loves. And you know, it's it's an award winning film, but it's the one that's going to change your life. Oh no. The podcast will be called five minutes of fate. We're going to do Manos, the hands of fate five minutes at a time. Oh, and of course, it, yeah. five minutes instead of nine, because of course, five fingers on each hand. Yep. Oh, God, it writes itself. That said, I feel really bad for whoever we're going to come on, have as a guest host for the opening credits of the film, because it is about five minutes of them just driving through Texas. It's about <laughs> it. But that said, I'm looking forward to it. And we do have a verbal commitment from Jackie Ray Naaman Jones to be a guest on that podcast as well uh, as well as some returning people from plan nine by nine and then maybe some other new folks as well we'll be launching a kickstarter to support that in 2020 very good to know derek i can't thank you enough for returning to talk about more william castle westerns uh what are the titles of the two remaining westerns that we're going to cover in the next time we record together for this show uh (laughs) one of them is uranium boom i love that title so much and um, is that duel, duel on the Mississippi? Is that the other one? Oh, Duel on the Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Duel on the Mississippi and Uranium Boom. The next time that Derek Cook and I sit down to talk about William Castle directed westerns of the 1950s. It'll be fun. Looking forward to it. And we got to get you I, back yeah, on MKR wait. at some point, man. 
it's kind of fascinating because the whole uranium thing. Yeah. Uh, I think that there was this period of time where in, you know, adventure fiction, uranium was like the, 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 the stand in for gold. I think it's going to be fun. <laughs> well, it is the 1950s. So, you know, the whole space race thing is starting to kick up and yeah, yeah, you know, Cold War stuff going. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Should be cool. Derek, thank you very much. Thank you, man. Really appreciate it. Bye. I'm going to lock my heart in, throw away the key. Well, I'm wise to all those tricks you played on me. I'm going to turn my back on love. Snuff that moon above. Seal all my heartaches up within. So the love bugs can't get in I'm gonna park my romance Right along the curb Hang a sign upon my heart Please don't disturb If I never fall in love again That soon enough for me I'm gonna lock my heart And throw away the key
So the love bugs can't get in I'm gonna park my romance Right along the curb Hang a sign upon my sweat lodge Please don't disturb If I never ever fall in love again That soon enough for me I'm gonna lock my heart And throw away the key I really mean I'm gonna lock my heart And throw away the key